0: Again, I want to thank you for the opportunity to preach and open the word to you. Uh, We're ready for Zechariah 8, as we've been going through the book. And uh, I might say that uh, chapters 7 and 8 really form one uh, unit. Uh, They're concerned with one basic question, and uh, those around uh, uh, about four weeks ago, whatever it was, will remember. It was a question about fasting. Do they continue to fast if they have... uh, uh, for the, uh, the temple and its destruction now, now that it's being rebuilt and is uh, approaching maybe halfway being done and uh, the answer is pretty extended uh, in chapter 7 uh, there was a question that God raised was, was it for me that you were fasting and the cu- conclusion it wasn't it was to make you feel better it wasn't for me and uh, he goes on, and we have really more of his answer in uh, Chapter Eight, and so we'll be reading that. And uh, children, if you want to do something, you might listen and count up every time. In the in the scripture reading, is the phrase "the Lord of hosts," and during the sermon, you'll hear me mention how many times it's used, but. Uh, Count up the number of times, and the adults you can pay attention as well, is that phrase, the Lord of hosts. He is the one who's speaking uh, to his people. Beginning with verse 1. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy and I'm zealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem each with staff in hand because of great age and the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thus says the Lord of hosts if it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days she shall also be marvelous in my sight declares the Lord of hosts thus says the Lord of hosts behold I will save my people from the east country and from the west country. I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And they shall be my people. And I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong. You who in these days have been hearing the words from the mouth of the prophets, who were present on the day when the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beasts, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there will be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit and the ground shall give its produce and the heaven shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, as I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, Says the Lord of hosts So again I have purposed in these days To bring good to Jerusalem And to the house of Judah Fear not These are the things That you shall do Speak the truth to one another Render against judgments that are true And make for peace Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another Love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah, seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore, love, truth, and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet again come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us at once, let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples, and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall come and take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you. We have heard that God is with you. Over the years, as I've had the opportunity to be in many Reformed uh, worship services, uh, there have been one or two that have uh, troubled me, uh, caused me to be perplexed by what is going on. It seems like they've followed a a certain pattern. Uh, The service begins really with a time of confession, uh, looking at our sins, uh, maybe addressing God as the holy, holy, holy one, and then begin speaking about our sin our wickedness. The fact that God cannot look upon sin with favor and going on to comment how we're terrible, wicked sinners that we're vile men and women <clears throat> who are constantly rebelling against God that we often fail to see the, the depth and the heinousness of our sin. And and that's true. But it continues to build on that. You know, our best efforts are like filthy bloody rags before God. That if God were to look on us and crush us as we would a, a cockroach We'd be getting better than what we deserve. And so we're impure. In our actions, in our thoughts, our motives. We're all always falling short of, of God's standards. And the last time I remember distinctly being in a in sort of worship service, the, the sermon took on that sort of message. The whole thing was about how we know have no spiritual ability, that we fall short. We cannot accomplish anything. I must say it was a very depressing sermon. Talking about uh, our frailties, our weaknesses, our sins, our giving in to temptations. It was a little surprising then when he got the application and he said, Now go out and conquer the world for Christ. You who are terrible maggots of people who haven't done anything ever right in your whole lives, conquer the world for Christ. And I think the point was, uh, the world needs Christ because they're so bad off. And I believe in total depravity, but I think what I find so uncomfortable about that worship service and a couple of others, is where's the good news? Where's the emphasis on what we are now in Jesus Christ? Our lives are transformed by God's word and spirit. We're now a new creation in Christ. And I think about the Apostle Paul as he addresses the churches in Corinth, in Ephesus, in Colossae, in other places. He calls them saints, literally holy ones. And they were far from holy if you look at some of the things going on in the Corinthian church. But that's how they're seen by God as those who have been made into the people of God, into the family of God. They're now new creations. Still with sin, but still yet something new in Christ. And there's a danger of living as if we're the old man and not the new man. Of wanting, of letting what we were before Color how we see ourselves now. If we're in Christ. We think as we were before, rather than now that I'm in Christ. Now my life has radically changed. And Zechariah eight is really pointing us to us and, and reminding the people in Zechariah's day, but in our day as well. There's been a change. There's something new going on. And so it should affect how you view yourself. How you look at the past. How you view the future. And how you live in the present. And so it begins with we regard the past. Not as controlling us. Not paralyzing us. But learning lessons. Lessons. We're not to go on rehearsing our sins of the past, being colored by our failures from the past, as if those failures are who we are now. And second, we're to look to the future, to focus on God's promises. What has he promised to his people? What has he purposed for us and how we're to live? And third, in the present, As we understand these truths, we're to act with courage, decisively in faith, through the help that we receive by the Holy Spirit. And so the first point, if you're a Christian, if you're united to Jesus Christ in faith, you're freed from your past. You can learn from it. There may be times when you have to make amends for it. uh, if you've done something wrong to to make it right but you're not to languish it you're not to be paralyzed by it and some Christians have incredible pasts incredible sins once a month I go to the Federal prison in Terre Haute, where they keep most of the death row inmates. And I see two of these men who, who've committed murder in their past. But they've been forgiven. Had to speak to, to women who've had abortions and are grieved by what they've done in the past, a young man who spent 10 years for a drug deal that went wrong, spending it in prison, a woman who accidentally killed on different occasions two different people by car accident. How do you live with that guilt? And wonder, can God ever forgive me? Can God ever use me in those situations? And so we need to see in Zechariah's day, they, their sins were before their eyes. There was the city in ruins, a reminder of the destruction that had come because the, the nation had been willful against God and breaking his commandments. The walls broke down. Only a remnant had returned, few in number, and the temple was destroyed, and even as they begin rebuilding, it's only halfway done. And on top of that, there's a question in 715. Was it for me that you fasted these 70 years? As you look at your lives, you should see the hypocrisy. You did it to feel good. To make others think that you are somehow good. You didn't really do it to please me. God was saying to them. In fact, he says that their hearts were diamond hard. And so God's anger was upon them. And if you turn over to to Haggai chapter 1, verse 5 and following, it, it pictures the judgment that came upon the people even as they returned. As they were living in the promised land once again. You've sown much and harvested little. You eat but never have enough. You drink but never have your fill. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. You place your wages into a bag with holes. There is no profit or increase for your labor despite being so religious. And they fasted and prayed Four times a year. They're perhaps soothing their consciences, but they weren't pleasing God. And why weren't they pleasing God? Because the, the one symbol of their relationship, of their worship of God, the temple, still remained in, in ruins. They were rebuilding their houses, they were living, some of them in paneled houses. But their worship of God was being neglected. And B, as you look at Haggai 215, what was missing was a recognition of God. How how he needed to bless the people. And at that point, as the people undertake the rebuilding before they place one rock on another, one stone on another but as they have that new relationship, God promises at that point to bless them. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone is placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, consider from this day onward, since the day that the foundation has been laid, what is The seed yet in the barn. But from this day on, I will bless you. The people are no longer under God's judgment. The relationship has been restored. And now he is going to bless them. And the first eight visions that we looked at in in Zechariah reinforce them, saying to the people, I'm with you. I've been opposed to you. I've sent you into destruction, into captivity. But even in your lowly condition now, I am with you. And God promises in, in Zechariah 2 from that point on that they are going to flourish. And the glory of that rebuilt temple will be greater than the glory that belonged to Solomon's temple. One of the schemes of the devil is to get us focused on the wrong things. To focus on the failures, on our, our, our doubts, to become paralyzed with fear. And we fail to see God's blessing. He did judge, but now he's turning to his people to once again bless them. In verses 2 and 3, thirdly, we can see how, how vastly different the situation. It's introduced by the phrase, the Lord of hosts. Did you see how many times it was used in the scripture leading? Children, I hope you came up with 18 times. Yeah. At least one of the adults got 18. I counted again this afternoon, just to be sure. We cannot make a mistake. Who is talking? It's the one who is in covenant relationship. That word Lord implies a covenant relationship of hosts who has all power and all strength. And, and so when he determines that he is going to bless his people, they are blessed indeed. I have returned to Zion and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And Jerusalem shall again be called the the faithful city and the mountain of the Lord. Again will be called the holy mountain. And it harkens back to Ezekiel 10. Where the prophet sees the, the glory of God departing from the temple. God is no longer with his people in that chapter. He goes out and sits in the east. He's withdrawn his blessing, and so the nation is ripe for captivity, for destruction, for judgment. But now we have the undoing of that. Here's one once again god is is in a sense reestablishing that. Relationship, a covenant relationship with the people. And notice the times in those verses that the word jealous or jealousy is using. That God is filled with concern for his bride. And Jerusalem be the, the faithful city. The word could be translated truth, a city of truth. And the mountain is the holy mountain before they weren't seeking after God's truth they weren't seeking after God's holiness but now as that covenant relationship is renewed it's being restored and the concern for truth and holiness is being restored as we think about that today we reminded of 2nd Corinthians 5 That if you're a Christian, you're different. Uh, Verse 17 says If therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. If you're a Christian, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ this evening, he has made you a new person. Your sins are forgiven, he's broken your bondage to sin. And you now have a new relationship to God. Your past, present, and future sins are all done away with. You don't need to dwell on them. Romans seven, the apostle cries out wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We go into in chapter eight. It begins with "There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus." It's Christ Jesus on the cross who delivers us. So when it comes to the past, we're to learn from it. There are times when I'm lonely, when I'm tired, I do these sins. I need to change. I need to maybe make restitution. But we're not to be caught up in it. We're not to live as if we're in bondage to sin anymore. That has been broken by the death of Christ. I think of one Jewish man who in his youth spent five years in a Nazi concentration camp. And when they uh, freed the camp, uh, was liberated, uh, he was uh, transported, as many others were, to New York City. He didn't know a single person there. He didn't know a word of English. And he got a job, the first job he could. It was uh, in the garment industry, sewing, sewing shirts. And he worked hard. And eventually, he got his own apartment. He started his own business, selling shirts. He got married and he had children. And when his son was about 12 years old, he asked him, Dad, why don't you ever talk to me about the concentration camps? And what went on there? And his response was, the Nazis took five years of my life. I won't give them One more second. And that should be our attitude as well. As we consider the sinful past. It's taken and robbed too many, too much time. We don't need to give the devil any more time by dwelling on it. By being paralyzed by it. Well, the second point this evening... Is like the people in Zachariah's day. We need to focus on God's promise in the future. You know, there are those who are around us who who look at the future and are terrified. You know, if you believe some of the political ads, if the Democrats get elected and have an overwhelming majority, if the Republicans have an overwhelming majority, democracy will end in our nation. Or if you're thinking about it in terms of uh, economic collapse, it's inevitable. And so you should be buying gold and silver to protect yourself. Or if you look at the doomsday closet, it was moved. Reason a little bit closer to, to midnight, to the end of the world. And there are those who speculate the war in Ukraine is going to lead to, to World War III. And all those things, any one of them, could terrify us. But as Christians, we're to look, and our focus is to be on the one who controls history. We're to look to Jesus Christ and what promises has he made for his people? What is he going to do for his people? And the scripture is filled with promises. God has said, "I will never leave you or forsake you." The righteous will no, never go around begging bread. As we go down through this chapter, there are a number of promises that he makes. And verses four and five is a picture. Of a city at peace and prosperity, which was the opposite of what Jerusalem was at that point. The population was scarce. The elderly stayed in, in Babylon. They couldn't handle the journey, the three month journey over a rough terrain to, to get back to Jerusalem. But it pictures in those verses a, a city filled with old men and old women of such advanced age that they needed canes. And a city filled with boys and girls playing in the streets. Boys and girls, do you understand you're a blessing? When we see a church that has boys and girls in it, It's an indication of God's blessing on that church. We love you. We love having you here. What a glorious thing it is. The elderly and the young are the first to go in times of oppression. Times of hunger. Times of war. And building on that in verses 7 and 8 there's going to be a gathering of God's people from east and west and by extension we can think north and south so those places where the people have been taken into captivity are going to once again be part of the worship of the true and living God and people in Zechariah's day were perhaps wondering when could this be When will we see the the city filled with people? The young and the old and the the people from exile coming back. But when you get to the New Testament, what do we see? In Jesus' day, the city being filled. We see at Pentecost people coming from all over the Mediterranean and beyond to, to come and worship God. And now we even see a greater fulfillment as we see that that church gone to the ends of the world. In Africa, people worshiping. In China, often secretly. But with great joy and great enthusiasm. In verse 10 and following, we see a reversal of the misfortunes, the sufferings that were listed in Haggai 1. Now there's a sowing of peace. We think of sowing of seeds, but there's something even more important than that, is, uh, is peace that allows that crop to grow and produce. The vine is going to produce fruit. The ground, its, it's produce. The heavens, it's dew. God is going to bless the work of their hands instead of cursing it. Going on, verse uh, 13, another promise uh, that that country that has been a byword for cursing, And you can imagine after the nation has gone into captivity, is is destroyed, how, you know, someone would use it as a curse. May may God make you like Israel, a barren and destroyed land to be a blessing. May God make you like Israel, a land bountiful and enjoying liberty and strong and prosperous another promise there is in verse 15 as God has purposed a disaster on the people in the previous generation and brought it about and they could see that when God promises something, when he purposes it, it comes to fruition now God purposes good to Jerusalem and the house of Judah God's attitude has changed from judgment to blessing. And so to the church. Jesus Christ has promised that he will build his church. His promise to be with the church even to the end of the age. And F, we can see verses 18 and 19, a promise to restore, restore seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feet. Here's the the answer to their question back in chapter 7. Should they mourn and fast as they have been for those 70 years? And I understand there's still some uh, groups of Jews that still fast four times a year. Are still looking for hope. That fasting is to be replaced with joyful feasting. And I think of the Lord's Supper. Because in a sim- symbolic way, when we come for the Lord's Supper, we're coming before the Lord to have a symbolic meal in God's presence, rejoicing in what he has done, rejoicing in what he has accomplished for us at the cross, how we have new life. Because of Jesus' death on the cross. And the final promise is in verses 20 to 22. It's a picture of universal longing for the Lord. Peoples and nations far and wide seeking God. It was rarely seen in the Old Testament. Or even in the New. But during the church age. Since Pentecost, we've seen the fulfillment of this. As believers are found in different people's groups and nations all over the earth, and looking forward to heaven when all these things will come true in all their fullness. Well, the third point is how then do we live in the present? And this passage mentions four things. First is in verses nine and thirteen. Let your hands be strong. Fear not. Let your hands be strong. So twice it calls for your hands to be strong. It's really a call to act forcefully. You know, the, maybe the easiest metaphor is, your, is you would go to battle. That you can't be hesitant. You can't go into battle with with trepidation. He has to be forceful. And in the spiritual battle, we need to be forceful. As God reveals his will to us, we would do it. When I was in college, there was a saying that was very popular. When in doubt, sack out. You know, just delay. Just uh, put it off. Don't do anything. This is a call just the opposite. When you know the will of God, act strongly. Secondly, you notice repeated in verses 13 and 15 is a phrase, fear not. Fear not. One of the greatest challenges the greatest enemies of faith isn't unbelief, but fear. Fear of the unknown, fear of past failures, fear of the future, fear of what others will think about me. It often paralyzes us. The fear of making a mistake. Fear that if I witness to this person... I may say something wrong and they won't become a Christian. We're to fear not. We're to live by faith not be controlled by fear. Third thing that we're to do is is found in verses 16 and 17. And this really deals with our fellow man. What are we we we're to be concerned for our fellow man? Love our neighbor. What does it say? Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another. And love no false oaths. So we should be concerned for others in the church and outside the church. To demonstrate a love for our neighbor. And fourthly, and most importantly, in verse 6, you to trust the Savior. There's a couple of questions here. Is it too marvelous in your sight? You know, Really, is it too difficult? And the people may be saying, yeah, I don't see this happening. I look at the temple and how it's not rebuilt. I look at the few numbers and wonder what can be done. I don't see a day when the city is filled with children. How can that be? But it goes on to say, is it too marvelous? Is it too difficult in my sight? And the one who is speaking is the Lord of hosts. 18 times the Lord of hosts. It's not too difficult for him. Therefore, we're to trust the Savior, there's nothing too difficult. Uh, speaking to a pastor friend, and he had befriended a, in a fairly small town a, a lesbian who had cancer, and he starts praying for. Her. In the worship service and and starts praying that she would come to church. And uh, one of the older men, one of the elders, kind of takes him aside after the worship service and says, uh, Do you know who she is? Do you know what she's like? And of course he did, he'd had regular interaction. And she had expressed an interest of coming to church sometime, as crazy as it seemed. And so he's praying for that to happen. Now she may not have enjoyed the, the worship service at all, but she was interested. Is it too difficult for God? I can't help but think of Rosaria Byerfield. Is it too difficult for God to convert her? No, it's not too difficult. We're to trust. We're to have faith in God, the Lord of hosts, to trust Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross. As you think about application, I have us think about uh, the past, the present and the future. First, when it comes to the past, we're not to live in it. we're not to dwell in it. We're not to be fixated on it. You've left that behind when you've become a Christian. There may be some lessons, there may be some sins that need to be repaired. But you're not to dwell on it. you're not to be paralyzed by it. You're not to say, "Well, God can't use me because of what I've done in the past. Be in regard to the future. you're not to be controlled by fear, but to look to the promises of God. We have great and glorious promises. And so while others around us may be fearful, what's going to be the economic outcome in a few years? What's going to happen in politics? What's going to happen in the war in Ukraine? We know who controls history. And we're to look to him. In the present or to show courage or to be strong or to act decisively doing God's will. As we know what God wants us to do, we're to do it. Relying upon the Holy Spirit to give us the strength and the ability. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for this passage. Um, and just how it uh, communicates uh, your truth to us uh, in terms of how we're to live. To know that in Christ we've been made new, what we were before, uh, we were under the control of a sinful nature, has been broken. We're now new creatures in Christ. And if there's anyone here that's not experienced that, I pray that they would look to you this evening. And understand what it means to to trust in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. And for those who've done so, that you've given great and glorious promises... Never to leave us or forsake us. To be with us to the end of the age. To promised us heaven in all its glory. With no more pain. No more sorrow. No more sickness. No more sin. No more death. Thank you for that promise. And help us to then be mindful of how we're to live now. Not as ones who are in defeat or despair or fear, but those who know they're on the winning side can go forth in strength and in faith, trusting in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.